I know most of us in this room have some Lee Brown stories to tell. I had a chance to last seven years ever since my family relocated into the Memphis area for about seven years. I was his ride to church every Sunday morning and a lot of times we would tell stories. He would sing songs. I would bounce sermon ideas off of him. Um, I remember the first Sunday he came to church, September 7th of 2008. And I don't remember your first day at this church. All right. I, I just know for some reason it stuck because I know he was baptized the next Sunday. And I remember walking out into the foyer before church and there was the smell of homelessness. And there was Lee, who for many of us was the one who taught us that homeless people or people who've been on the streets have names and they have stories and there's something behind what you may smell or what you may see. Lee was a paradox in so many ways because in my life, I've never known anyone who could hold a grudge more than Lee Brown could hold a grudge. And I don't know if I've ever known anyone who could be given $20 or have $20 and give it away as quickly as Lee could give it away. I don't know if I've ever known anyone who could sit on the phone and talk someone out of a, a drug binge or a night of alcoholism or out of depression and 15 minutes later be in one himself. Yet he's been used by God to minister to many of us. I remember the Sunday he was baptized, John Kennedy baptized him, and the heater was not working in the baptistry that day. And his left hand was on that side right there as John tried to baptize all of his body, yet he was not letting go for anything. For 10 years, he has asked me, Pastor Josh, I'll be in heaven, but will my left hand be there with me, all right? Am I, I going to be Captain Hook in heaven? I don't know. I'm just very grateful for his life. And we'll do our best. Uh, I've been in conversations with some of Lee's family over the last... 12 hours, and we will share with you the best we can of when some funeral arrangements will be made. It's about this time every July, I do some reflecting. It's been 21 years, 1997 of this month is when God redirected my life. I'd been baptized at an earlier age, but yet it was in 1997 that I went to a church camp, and it was speaking specifically into some of the sin I was struggling with in my own life. I went, at a, I went to a large high school outside of Dallas. I played football in that high school. If you play football at most high schools in Texas, you are given privileges that most people in your school don't have. In football season, I was given passes where I could show up to every class 15 minutes late and leave every class 15 minutes early for training and therapy, all right? I could eat. A lot of restaurants would feed me and a few of my friends for free if we had letter jackets. There were so many privileges we had. We would wear those letter jackets 12 months a year. The heat of July in Dallas didn't matter. We still wore them. And what it did for me at a young age is it went to my head. I thought I was God's gift to life. I thought I was God's gift to women. And, and I made a lot of mistakes in a few months of my sophomore year that uh, I deeply regretted. And I was not sure that God could forgive me or would forgive me for some of the things I did. And it was in July of 1997 that I went into a short little depression, and I don't suffer from depression. It was circumstantial. I was curious about God's forgiveness and if he would forgive me for some of the things I've done. And my sister came home from college and came in my room one night and started asking me questions about my prayer life, about my life with God and how I was doing with God. And I found myself confessing to Jenny some things, and she was asking some very specific questions about sin in my life. And then she said, hey, tonight we need to sit down with mom and dad, and we need to share with them some of the sin in our lives. In which I said, I will be there for you as you do, but that's not what 16-year-olds do, all right? 
I will support you all the way through it. And I remember sitting by her as she went first and shared some of the things in her life that she was just getting out in front of my mom and dad. And my mom was already a basket case before we got to me, all right? And I started going, I'll never forget it. I shared a few things through tears and confession. And my mom jumped up and she left the room and I thought she'd ran out of the room because she was so disappointed. She was gone for 15, 20 seconds, which sometimes feels like eternity. And she came back in the room with her Bible open to the Psalms. I'll never forget it. My mom started reading and praying Psalms over my sister and I. Psalm 103, Psalm 63, Psalm 84, Psalm 51. Praying Psalms that were declaring the forgiveness of God. And I remember that was the first time in my life I felt like I could open up my hands and receive the grace and the forgiveness of God. And I knew in that time, if there's a God who can love me and forgive me for some of the things I've done, that I want to serve him in my life no matter what it is. And I didn't know what that would lead to. I didn't feel a sense of calling in that moment or in that season to become a preacher, a pastor, a minister, a teacher. I didn't know what it would mean. I just knew whatever I did with my life, I I wanted to live my life for Jesus. And what God did for me in 1997 is what God has done for many of you and is what God wants to do for some of you to redirect your entire life, to give you a reason to live, to teach you that Jesus wants so much more than just to save you from your sin, but to be the Lord of everything you are, that Jesus wants to raise up people in his church and equip them to believe that there is no past or failure that can keep you from being loved by God, saved by God, used by God. God's wanting to raise up some people in this church right now for some mighty things in this kingdom, for kingdom impact and kingdom significance. Before we jump into the fourth of five sermons that I'm preaching right now called Bible Tweets, I'm going through the five shortest books in the Bible, five books in the Bible that are one chapter each. If they're in the Bible, they're in there for a reason. I thought it would be a fun series to do. Many of you have enjoyed the series because you have not read any of these small little books. They're, they're hidden away in your Bible, yet there's so much power found in them. Before we get there, I want to share with you, today I'm going to preach on 3 John. You may want to go ahead and try to find it in your Bible. Next week, I'm going to preach on Jude. And let me just tell you, Jude is weird, all right? He's a crazy guy. He's the brother of Jesus, and I think when he wrote Jude, he had had four espressos or NyQuil or maybe a blend of both, all right? Uh, So you may want to read it before next Sunday. I'm going to be off a couple of Sundays after that. I'm traveling, having a little fun with my kids one weekend. I'm preaching at another church in Texas the next weekend. On August 12th, I'm going to start a 15-week series on the Gospel of Mark. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm going to take Mark chapter 1 through 10 and walk you through it in 15 weeks. And here's my challenge to the church, and it's a challenge I've already laid in front of our leadership, the elders and ministers. It's from August 12th all the way to Thanksgiving. I want to encourage you to take on a two for 15 challenge, a two over 15 that I want you to have two Sundays over a 15-week period that you invite someone to church. Something we've got to do better as a church, as people of God, is to excel at the invitation. And the invitation to church isn't the only invitation we give to people. But any invitation that can draw someone closer to Jesus needs to be an invitation that we learn to excel in, to take a risk in. So from August 12th to the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I want to encourage you to have two Sundays out of 15 where you invite someone to come and sit with you in church. Take them to lunch afterwards. Let them buy you lunch afterwards. Just bring them to church and let's see what God will do. Um, In 3 John, if you you haven't found it, open it up uh, in your Bible. It's short 15 verses. And the word John is not used in 3 John. John's not used in 2 John. But tradition tells us that John wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. All five he wrote in an older age. 
So some of the songs uh, that Kip led us in today in the praise team and some of the verses that have been read and what Verlin shared at the table is there's this echo throughout all of scripture that we declare to the next generation the deeds of God that we pass on to the next generation. So John's writing at an older age. Some people think he was in prison at this time. So he had time to reflect and to reminisce. Most likely he's in his 70s, maybe even 80s when he's writing all this. He's writing because he has a love for the church, a love for people. He wants to see the gospel and the kingdom keep going to the next generation and on and on. So it's this, it's this deep love for the church. It causes John to write. So he's writing, writing in Third John to a church. And there's this phrase John comes back to over and over again in First John second John and third John and it's this phrase walking in the truth because John knows that the truth is not something you just tread water in it's not just something you kind of hold on to you walk in it did you know the world record for treading water is 84 hours can you imagine doing that 84 hours it was a teenager who was part of a swim team and decided he was going to break the record. And the record was like in the 50s. He treaded water for three and a half days in the deep end of a swimming pool. Had people reading books while he was doing it to keep him awake and vibrant. Can you imagine that? 84 hours. Yet I know churches, many of us who have treaded water in faith for much longer than that. Staying in the same spot because we find a place of comfort and we don't want to move. We stay in the same spot, not asking God to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And here's this phrase he keeps coming back to, a walk in the truth. There are three things John believed about the gospel that echo through everything John writes. One, the gospel saves. Now, I want to make sure you understand when I use the phrase gospel, I'm not talking about a belief system or a list of doctrine. I'm talking about the good news of Jesus. And John believes in the good news of Jesus. He believes the gospel saves which needs to be a message from the church. There are people who don't know Jesus who need to know Jesus. There are people who are not connected to Jesus and they're not living like they're connected to Jesus. The gospel saves people from hell. The gospel saves people from from any form of bondage. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, liberates people. Now, here's the thing in the church today is sometimes we can talk so much about God's grace and God's love that we fail to talk about repentance. So sometimes we want to bypass repentance to get to the grace of God, but you can't bypass that. We've got to help people acknowledge their sins, speak it for what it is, talk about the things that are separating them from God so they can see how great and wonderful Jesus is. The good news of Jesus saves, the gospel unites. John believes that the gospel unites. So something John talks about all the time is you've got to love one another. In fact, last week in 2 John, we saw that John is referencing something from John 13 when Jesus told people, a new command I give you is to love one another. Yet years later, John writes 2 John where John says, hey, this isn't a new command anymore. Like to love one another should not be a new command for you. This should not be something you forget. This should be something you acknowledge every single day of your life that we are commanded by God to love one another. And this becomes one of, if not the most important form of evangelism to people who don't know Jesus is they need to see the people who do love Jesus loving each other the way God wants them to love each other. Third thing is that the gospel spreads. The gospel saves, gospel unites, gospel spreads. John believes that the gospel is not just for the church to take in and to sit on and to hold to themselves, but it is to go out into all of the world through us as we become light and salt. 
So 3 John begins like this, all right? Sometimes what helps me when I'm reading books of the Bible or parts of the Bible and I don't really know much about them is I want to see how the characters are developed. And I'm not making this into a fiction story where the characters tell you what the story is, but there are times where we read and we can see the names of people and it helps us. In 3 John chapter 1, you see who John writes to. And it says, I have, um, in 3 John verse 1, it's the elder, John's referring to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We aren't really sure who Gaius is. There are three different Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament. There's some historians that have written years ago saying that the most common name in the first century was Gaius. So there were a lot of them out there. He's writing to Gaius, who must have been a leader in this church. But then there are two other names he mentions. One is Diotrophus. Diotrophus, and, and here's what he says about this guy in verse 9 and 10. I've written something to the church, but Diotrophus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing in spreading false charges against us and not content with those charges. He refuses to welcome the friends and even prevents those who do so and expels them from the church. How would you like to be Diotrophus right here, right? <laughs> have you ever been called out in a public place? Were you ever, did you, did you ever have a day in school when they came over the intercom and said, hey, I need to see Josh Ross in the principal's office. Ever, ever happened to you? Maybe it just happened to me, all right? There been, I've been written up. I've been written up in articles and journals and newspapers and on social media. There have been people who've written reviews about some of the books I've written that haven't been so good. And my mom hunted down every single one of them, all right? <laughs> I'm maybe 37. My mommy still fights some of my battles for me, all right? I don't know if you've ever been written up or called out in a public place, but here's Diotrophus, who is called out in the Bible. It's there forever. And if you read, like, just what's in 10 and 11, it doesn't sound like he's like, he's not spitting false truth about Jesus. It's that he's doing some things against John and there's just some things, ways practicing church and church leadership that just aren't good. Like this guy could be in heaven with John right now. Like John, for real, man, like for years, like my name's in the Bible and this is what I'm known for. Tells you maybe a little something going on in that church. And then there's one other person mentioned in verse 12. Everyone has testified favorably, favorably about Demetrius. He graduated from Bartlett, grew up in this church, going to Lipscomb. Son of Patrick and Chauncey, this is a different Demetrius. And so as the truth itself, we also testified for him, and you know that our testimony is true. He affirms his brother. But there's some deeper reasons John writes. Let me just show you. Third John, uh, verse 3. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. John does not throw around the, tr the word truth in some casual way. In all of his writings, this is a word he comes back to a lot. He wants to talk to people about the truth, like what is true? And I know this is in the 21st century, like what is true, right? Like do people even believe in absolute truth anymore? And any truth you have can be challenged by friends or foes or science. And not that faith and science are ever opposed, but yet there, any truth you have, can, there can be challenges to it. And for John, truth is it's, it's something that you know, but it's also something that you live out. 
Truth is not just a belief system that you write out on a piece of paper. It's something that you live out uh, with your life. So if I were to ask you today, like, what are those things that you believe are true? Without a shadow of doubt, you're banking your life on them. Could you make a list of just three to five? Now, anyone who grew up in forms of legalism, I didn't grow up in legalism. I grew up in a more conservative church. The list of things you have to do to appease God and please God and be saved is so long. I grew up believing there were like 40 things you needed to do to like be in heaven one day. All the way from declaring Jesus and believing in the resurrection to being baptized to instrumental music. I mean, it was a long list. The older I've gotten, the fewer those things are, yet the more intensified they are. The more I believe in them and bank on them. And this doesn't mean that you... Have some truths in your life that you don't have some doubts about occasionally. But John just comes back to this. For Christians, you need to know not just to walk. It's walking in the truth. And usually he details and identifies truth as the truth of the teachings of Christ. What do you know about Jesus? In verse 4, some of you have this hanging in your house somewhere. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This means something to you who have kids under five. It means something to me. I have kids who are 11 and eight. I bet this will take on a whole new meaning when my kids are 20 and 18 and 37 and 35. That anyone who has children hopes that one day they could hang this on a wall and celebrate this, that there's nothing that brings us greater joy than to know that our children are walking in this truth. Yet John's not talking about his biological children. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church that has been birthed by Jesus, that he wants to see people. He's probably writing to churches now that are second, maybe third-generation Christians. That this early church started, and now three generations later, he's writing to a church, hey, there's nothing that brings me greater joy than to see that my children or great-grandchildren in the faith are walking in this truth. I think John in some way here is like promoting and calling the church to be this multi-generational church where it's really easy in the church to get separated into your own little segments, right? Yet this right here is not just a statement about the children developing faith. I think it's also a challenge for those who are helping the generation behind them develop faith. There's nothing we want as parents or what we want as parents is for our children to develop. As church leaders, there should be nothing we want more than to see development in the lives of people who are connected to our churches, wanting them to develop and to be equipped and to grow. Yeah, one of the challenges with multi-generationalism is that most of us have a generational bias to whatever era we grew up in, right? Like my wife loves music. But she would tell you that the 80s is the best music ever, all right? Like, there's some TV shows that I think are pretty good, but, but nothing's better than Saved by the Bell and Fresh Prince from the 1990s, all right? This is, like, generational bias is what leads me to believe that if MJ and LeBron played 10 games, Michael Jordan would win all 10 of them, all right? But just, it's just a belief, yet God is bringing together these different generations, and it is it's, it's the task of those who are older, who have generations under them, to not just pray for them and want the best for them, but to declare the wonders of God to the next generation. And if you had only three to five shots, and some of you don't even have that many, if you just have a couple of chances 
to speak a word of wisdom and truth into the generation under you or generations under you, you better make sure you make those two to four chances count. Don't waste them. Don't head on to it's something to the next generation that doesn't have eternal kingdom significance. I was reading recently a, a book uh, that Barna launched. Barna does a lot of research on faith and spirituality in the 21st century. They do some really good work. And what Barna found is that millennials, those born from 1984 to 2002, the number one thing they wanted in spiritual life was a connection with God. The number two was they wanted mentors. That they felt that the most important thing to their walk with God was, first of all, having a connection with God. But secondly, was having mentors. That was ahead of Bible study. It was ahead of spiritual disciplines. Which led me then to ask, who are going to be those who mentor those who are younger, who are asking for it? Right? This takes time and energy and investment. So to live into the statement, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walk in in the truth, should be this rallying cry for the entire church to live into. Verse 5 through 8, here's, here's what John writes, and he's speaking something very specific to this church. Beloved, you do faithfully. Whatever you do for the friends, so there are people coming from the outside through this church. And, and he continues, even though they are strangers to you, they have testified to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God. For they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I think John's talking to the church about two things. One is the role of hospitality, and another is the role of sending. Now, 2 John, which I preached on last week, there were times where John was telling that church, hey, you need to be really careful when it comes to hospitality. And you don't need to let people who have false teaching on their radar come in into your house, protect what you let into your house. But here in 3 John, he's pushing the church, hey, you need to take in those who are coming from the outside. The role of hospitality is a role of acceptance, and it's something we've got to get better at. Who are we allowing at our tables? Who are we sitting with? How can we open up our homes? Americans now live in homes that are larger than they've ever been before, yet are practicing hospitality less. As the church, we know we can do better. But then there's this role of sending that I don't want you to miss in 3 John. Because the key for him is apparently he had like some missionaries or some preachers who were coming through these churches and he's talking to them, hey, here's the, one of the best things you can do for them is that you invest in them and love them and you send them on. I think this is a word for the church today. Because in the churches in the world and the churches in America, sometimes what we do is we focus a lot more on helping people arrive into the church than we do on helping people thrive and be equipped so that we can send them for the sake of the gospel. If a church has the best guest ministry and greeter system and new member orientation and helping people immediately get connected to the church, but not intentional plans and surrendering to God to help develop, equip, and send people into the world. Are we doing what God has called the church to do? We've got to get better. Not just at Sycamore View, the church has to be better at learning how to send people out. The ministry of sending. This doesn't mean that everybody becomes missionaries, no matter where we go, that we are being sent for a mission. Because every single person in the church matters. All of them, every single one. Which is why John ends 3 John 
in verse 15 with this. Peace to you. The friends send you their greetings, so greet the friends there, each, <clears throat> each by name. I don't know how large that church was. Maybe 25, maybe 40 people. But what he commands Gaius to do is you, like, by name, I want you to greet them. Because every single person in the church has a name. And God knows the name. And God knows what is unique about every single person. Think about it. As great and amazing as God is, God knows the names of over 7 billion people on this planet. God knows the names of the trillions of animals and creatures walking this planet. God knows the names of every star and solar system and universe. And as busy and great and amazing as God is, God knows everything about you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many hairs you've lost from some of your heads. God knows it all. And there's something about realizing God knows me by name that teaches us something about Jesus. Should boost our identity and our dignity and our belief that God believes in us and wants to use us for his purposes. So will you stand with me? I want to ask as you stand if the elders and prayer leaders will go to the places to receive people this morning for prayer. And before Kip and the praise team lead us in a song, I just want to invite you as a church, will you close your, heads, hand, close your eyes, bow your heads. And if you're willing and available, just open your hands where you are to receive from the Lord this morning. As we pray, I just want to ask you, if there's someone in this room that's struggling to believe you are known by God, know that God knows you by name. God is not looking down right now needing to ask who's on his left or his right needing to call in some special counsel to remind him of your name and who you are. God, God knows you by name. If there's someone here who is struggling with believing that God can forgive you for the things you have done or save you because of some of the things you have done, just with open hands before the Lord, I want you to see that there is one who loves you in spite of all that you have done, who is calling you into his heart, who whose grace is greater than you can ever believe, and who's, who has given us the gift of repentance to set us in the right direction. If there's someone here who has been saved and you are questioning whether you can be used in the kingdom or not, know that God doesn't waste his salvation. Every single person God has saved, God wants to use. So can you join me this morning in just asking God to use you this week for kingdom significance? It could be a big thing. It could be a small thing. Just ask God to use you give you confidence, help you to take a risk to increase our faith. And God, I pray for this church that you fill us today and this week, fill us with wisdom. Fill us with a sense of mystery about who you are, with a sense of adventure about what you have called us into and unleash us this day to go out of this place into your world for the sake of the good news of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray and the whole church said,